You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are on with Professor David Edmonds, one of the authors of Bobby Fischer Goes to War, How the Soviets Lost the most extraordinary chess match of all time. If you're a chestnut or if you are a fan of the early 70s or a Cold War buff, history buff, this is a book you must read. Professor Edmonds, thank you very much for coming on tonight. Pleasure. Nice to be with you. Your background isn't necessarily in in Cold War history, uh, but you chose to write this book. Why Bobby Fischer? Why this match? And what led you to spend so much of your time chronicling the chess match in 1972? Well, I'd written a book before this one, which was another clash, but not in the world of chess, in the world of philosophy between two of the great philosophers of the 20th century, Ludwig Wittgenstein and Karl Popper. And they'd clashed in Cambridge over red hot poker. Uh, And... (laughs) Um, There was a philosophical dispute at the heart of it. And the question was what we we would do next. And we wanted to do another philosophy book. Um, But we had a lunch with our um, publisher, Faber. We were published by HarperCollins in the United States. And he he asked me what I was doing then. And I was, uh, at the time, making a couple of programs for the BBC, Um, because half my life is spent at the BBC. I was making a couple of programs on the World Chess Championship I had, and the history of the World Chess Championship. I'd grown up playing chess and had always been fascinated by chess. And the publisher said, um, well, you know, how about a book about chess? And and the Fischer-Spassky story was the most famous story in the history of chess. And I regard myself as a child of that games. I was born in 1964. I was eight years old when that match took place and I still remember it. And British chess, as indeed chess in America, was given a huge boost by that match. And um, I I played, as did many other junior British chess players, Britain had a very um, strong junior team in those days. And we were all inspired by Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky, but particularly, of course, by by Fischer. So that was the origin of the book. And one of the most famous grandmasters who came out of this sort of era is perhaps someone you know or maybe have beaten once or twice, Mr. Short, Grandmaster Short. 
Nigel Short. <laughs> I wish I had beaten him. I do know him. Yes, I do know him. I wish I had beaten him. No, no, I've never beaten him. He's exactly my uh, vintage. Or he's a year younger than me, actually. So um, when we were young, we played in a couple of tournaments together. Um, I played him, I think, only once and got completely humiliated. <laughs> I remember playing in the British under... I think it was under nines when I must have been eight and he was probably seven. And he was already way, way ahead of me. And then within the next two years, he'd moved into a a, a different dimension altogether and eventually became the challenger to Kasparov. So he, he was in the That's top right. two or three players in the world. So he was my generation, but um, I'm afraid we weren't in the same league. <laughs> Now, now, let's talk a little bit about Fisher. You detail in your book, Bobby Fisher Goes to War, the absolute genius that Fisher was as a chess player and the fact that it's pretty clear in all the books that I've read, the Frank Brady books and other books about Fisher, that he had a tortured childhood Lots of questions about who his father was. His mother was very much an activist, very much an absentee mother. He did have a sister. They were close. But Fisher turned to chess as kind of a fill-in-the-blank parent. And from that, he became the youngest grandmaster in history at that time. Those early years you write about so well, how compelling were they to you? Uh, well, I was very interested in his upbringing. He began to play chess when he was five or six. And actually, he wasn't an instant prodigy. That's right. It took a few years until he suddenly kind of zoomed forward. So he played a lot till he was about uh, 10 or 11. And, and then he famously says, when I was 11, I just got good. Uh, and he had exactly a sudden right. spurt. And, <laughs> and, and from, that, from that moment on, there was no stopping him. And he became the U.S. champion age 14 and a, 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 a grandmaster soon after that. And then a few years later, he did the, the most remarkable thing, which was he played in the U.S. championship, which I think he won eight times. And uh, in one of them, I think it was the fifth time he competed or maybe the sixth time he mm -hmm. competed, he won 11 games out of 11, which in the world of chess is just extraordinary because in chess, you know, you win some, you lose some, and lots of games are drawn at that level. And to win 11 in a row is, is a phenomenal achievement. So his background was very interesting. Uh, I, uh, His father was absent and... One of the great revelations of our book mm -hmm. was that his father wasn't the person he thought his father was. In fact, I think it was only with our book, and I don't even know whether he read it, but you must have got back to him, that he would have, so there were ethical issues there, that he would have discovered who his father was. So he was called Fisher after a chap called Gerhard Fisher, um, who was um, German-born. Uh, but the dates didn't seem to make sense because Gerhardt had disappeared from the scene more than a year before Fischer was born. It didn't make any sense. And 
I did what I'd done for the previous book on on Wittgenstein. Um, I wrote to um, uh, the CIA and the FBI and asked um, through the Freedom of Information request for anything they had on Fisher. And they said, sorry, we can't give you anything on Fisher because he's still alive. So then I thought, well, his mother, as you say, was an activist. She was very left-wing. She was basically a, 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 a communist. I thought, well they probably got something on her. So I asked for anything they had on from the FBI on, on, on um, his mother, Regina. And they said, yes, yes, we've got something on her. And a couple of months later, it still hadn't arrived. So I, I wrote back to them and said, you know, you said you had something. We, we, when, when is it going to come? They said, well, we're still going through it, sir. <laughs> They're very polite. And it took a long time. And then... Eventually, after I think about nine, ten months, one day through my door in London came these two giant parcels, some of which was material that was redacted, but this incredible source material, thank God for any modern historians for the FBI and the CIA because they, they seem to have followed quite a lot of people. And they'd followed Regina for 25 years. And there was an incredible amount of material in her, which wasn't strictly relevant for our story, but we couldn't help but put some of the material in. But we had a long appendix about it. And in that material was information that clearly indicated that Fisher's real father was a Hungarian called Paul Nemenyi. One of the many ironies of this was that Fisher, who became raggedly anti-Semitic, everybody knew his mother was Jewish. Uh, it was thought that his father wasn't. His father was just a, a you know a, a, a non-Jewish German. But it, it became clear that um, through this material that his father, this Hungarian-born physicist, was also Jewish. So he was Jewish on, on both sides. Um, so it was incredible material. I actually don't think that his background is was the cause of his troubled, as he described his troubled upbringing. I mean, I think, and we couldn't put this in the book, they stopped us and they, for legal reasons, but I think he was a classic case of somebody with Asperger's, um, mm. I, I, I think that had he been, somebody like Fisher being born nowadays, he would have been diagnosed with Asperger's and would have been helped. Uh, Asperger's wasn't uh, recognized until the 1980s. Fisher was born in 1943. So um, uh, I think, you know, he was, he, he had a condition. He had a condition that would these days would have a name on it. Uh, and he ticked all the boxes. He was you know, obsessional about one thing, chess. He was acutely sensitive to various things. He was hopeless at um, empathy and social interaction. Mm -hmm. He ticks every single box uh, that define what Asperger's is. And I think it was less the fact that his parents were separated than that he had this condition. I mean, his mother, who was off campaigning a lot, she was nonetheless a loving mother who I think didn't quite know what to do with this kid. I guess um, exactly because right. Because he didn't fit. He, he didn't fit in anywhere. Yeah, sorry, I'm talking for too long. But but, <laughs> but uh, uh, so um, uh, you know, chess, as it were, saves Fisher 
I think. And, and, and his mother was, was very relieved that he discovered chess because God knows what else would have happened to him had he not found it. Well, the fact that he is a chess genius is is beyond dispute. It's I mean, it's universal. It's it's a matter of whether he's the greatest player or he's just one of the two or three greatest players. But both of his parents were geniuses. His mother spoke multiple language languages. I think she was in medical school, and her his real father was a genius in and of itself. So, how much of his chess genius do you think is nature versus nurture? Oh, that's a controversial question. <laughs> I mean, I, I, probably there's a there's a quite a high degree of of nature in there. Uh, I mean, nature gets you only so far, of course, because learning to play chess is like itself learning a language. Unless you it, you can be as intelligent as you like, unless you play and play and play and play chess, you won't reach the highest levels because you have to develop a deep intuitive understanding of where the pieces could should go the harmony of the pieces and how how your forces connect with each other and all that sort of thing comes with experience but he clearly was 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 brilliant and you know so his iq is estimated at about 180 um and he was obviously one of the best players that has ever existed that there's actually now a way of sort of measuring how good a player is um, by testing their moves against a supercomputer so now you can rank players and i mean he probably wasn't in magnus carlson's league magnus carlson mm-hmm. is the current world champion but mm-hmm. there, there are reasons why current players are superior to, to players back then they've got all sorts of advantages they've got computer support um they're learning at a younger age that they're, they're, they're playing at a higher level to younger age there's all sorts of reasons why modern players have advantages but clearly he was one of the greatest players in the in the history of chess and one facet of his game that everybody talks about and which destroyed the will of the psychological will of his opponents was that he was almost kind of computer-esque in his approach to the game. And I mean by that, that he would often play moves that were incredibly effective, but seemed to an ordinary player counterintuitive. Um, And they seem like computer moves because only a computer would play such kind of weird moves, which nonetheless worked. Um, uh, he, he also seemed to play the board, not the, not the opponent. So he had a very objective way of playing chess. Some people will look at the opponent, know what the opponent's weaknesses are and so on. Fisher just liked playing the best move on the board. And a combination of all those things meant that his opponents found it very psychologically tough to play against him. They, there's often, you often hear that people describe how their egos crumbled. Fisher liked mm-hmm. to say he could, he liked, he liked that moment where he could tell that his opponent's ego had crumbled. They'd lost the will to fight. He could sort of somehow sense that, but it was very dispiriting playing against him because it felt like you were playing a com- computer. Fisher was born in the 40s and then got good, in his own words, in the 50s, including the match against uh, an American 
an excellent American player named Donald Byrne in which Fisher uh, employed a queen sacrifice as a teenager against this grown man, won the match, and it was subsequently called the game of the century. He travels through the 60s somewhat erratically. He plays very well, and then he just stopped playing for a year and a year and a half when he didn't get his way. He'd withdraw from tournaments, even if he was massively ahead. And not just, you know, tournaments at the local uh, coffee shop, international candidate matches, you know, in the process, a relatively drawn out process to become uh, a challenger for the world championship. He would just leave if he didn't like the lighting. When you wrote your book and you're chronicling kind of his wilderness years in the 60s, what was going through your mind? Like, why can't this guy get it together? Or how could someone with so much talent not understand the genius of himself and why is he so just so damn difficult yes he's a difficult person to understand he would insist on certain conditions during games and matches and tournaments and I think part of his Asperger's that I was talking about earlier was his acute sensitivity to things like noise and light. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was making it up. Some people say it was gamesmanship. I don't actually believe that. I think he was acutely sensitive to these sorts of things. And Russian players, Soviet players blamed it on his upbringing that he was just a badly brought up young man. They thought he was spoiled. They thought he was spoiled. That in, this was this this was he was a, t- a perfect example of what capitalism could do to a human being. <laughs> um, uh, 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 that's right. Um, but but as I say, I I, I think it it was genuine. Um, but he was incapable of compromising. He began to, from an early age, believe that. Um, he was a genius and that his genius deserved to be recognized in how much he was remunerated for his exactly play. And so he would start asking for more money than anybody else. It actually had a beneficial effect for the rest of the chess world because he was box office. You know, he was, he was trouble. He was the bad boy of chess. He was a brilliant chess player. People wanted to come and see him. So he brought more money into the game. And I guess he can't have been discouraged by the fact that whenever he made demands, um, more often than not, they were acceded to. So he got his way almost all the time. Every now and again, he would push the demands too far and there would be a refusal, and he would storm off. And, and, and hence, we've got these two periods in the wilderness when he doesn't get his way, and he disappears. I mean, I, I, some great sportsmen have, have come back from that. I mean, everybody knows about Muhammad Ali. He was able mm-hmm. to re- return from not fighting for whatever it was, three years. But it's very difficult, and it's difficult as difficult in chess as in other of these sports, because... You need to be constantly playing, constantly exercising your brain to be at the top of the, your, your game and, and, and to be at the top of international chess. And to disappear and still be able to come back is remarkable. And Fisher did it twice. Uh, and he did it at an age when 
you should be improving rapidly. So that's the double tragedy. You know, who knows how good he would have been had he played throughout this period. That's so a great. At, that's a great at, point. At, at it, the time, yeah, yeah. So at the time, he 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 should really have been maturing in 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 his chess. He disappeared from it, and thank God, you know, he eventually was persuaded to to return in in the very late 1960s. Well, one of the things that I believe as as a history nut is there's a there's a common theme in history, and that is. We make excuses and allowances for talent, for genius. And there are lots of examples in history of, of geniuses who behaved badly or behaved murderously, quite frankly. And when I think of this sort of thing, it always comes back to Fisher. The allowances made for him based on box office, based on the fact that he was an American, based on the fact that he was just so damn good – really did propel chess to the forefront of not only the chess world. In other words, Fisher himself became the the dominant figure in chess world, even before he became world champion, because after, and we'll get to this, after he became world champion, he never played in a tournament again until 18 years later, or about 20 years later. But chess was on the cover of news magazines, sports magazines, was front page headlines throughout the world. That was completely different than what was happening before Fisher came onto the scene. Yes, nobody knew anything about chess before Fisher. The, the chess world championship had been dominated since World War Two, before World War Two, by the Soviets. There were no Americans at the very, or very few Americans at the very elite level of chess. Uh, there were few chess players. There were almost no professional chess players. It was almost impossible to make your living out of chess. And he changes all that. And as you say, he makes these ridiculous demands. If you make ridiculous demands and you're not a genius, <laughs> well, then you're just a jerk. You're just a jerk. You know, but whereas if you're a genius and you make demands, well, then people capitulate to them. And as you say, they make allowances for them. Um, but being the bad boy of, 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 of chess um, didn't make him popular, but it did put chess on the map. So, um, I mean, w- w- we will no doubt get to this, but after the game with Spassky, there was a period in which there was money flowing into chess and many other Brits and Americans and, and, and professionals around the world could begin to make a living out of chess because chess poured was poured into tournaments and into uh, uh, into clubs and so on. And, and, and so it became a, a viable lifestyle for at least the very top players, which it never had been before. In the in the 60s, Fisher's, Fisher had a self-imposed exile, but he came back, and I believe I got the chronology relatively correct. And his, one of his first big matches after he comes back was in the USSR versus the World chess tournament. And before that, in the Chess Olympiad, 1970. In 1970, he plays Boris Spassky, and he loses. One of the interesting things about your book is how you detail that, that Fisher never beat Spassky uh, until they actually played for the world championship. Then Fisher comes back, plays brilliantly in this USSR versus the world match. And the reason I particularly bring this up is for the Soviet Union – 
and its top players to take on all the top players of the rest of the world combined shows you the strength of their chess program and how much they emphasized it as part of their communist ideology. Yes, chess was very important to the Soviet Union. They didn't have many things which demonstrated their superiority over capitalism. They had the ballet, they had the circus, they had chess, and they were without parallel the best chess playing nation in the world. And yes, they could they could take on the world and expect expect to win. All the world champions had been Soviet. Boris Spassky became world champion in 1969. He had been preceded by uh, Petrosian. There was Tao, there was Bokvinik, there was Smyslov. Um, a whole raft of, of Soviet players. In the Soviet Union, there were special chess schools. If you got to the elite level and became a a, a, a grandmaster, there was a, a salary to be had. Um, so there were lots of privileges that came with being at the elite level of chess. It was prestigious. There was um, status attached to it. So it, it was something people wanted to aspire to. It was um, played a lot. Of course, it was in some ways nicely apolitical you could you could play a game of, of, of chess in a club or in a park and not worry that you're going to get into any kind of problems you know there, there, there's no politics involved it was a safe arena mm -hmm. for citizens to, to play chess um and so for, for all, all those reasons it was extremely popular in the soviet union and i think they thought their dominance would continue indefinitely. You mentioned earlier that famous game, which had been called slightly exaggeratedly, but, but understandably the game of the century when, when Fisher at the age of 13 played this extraordinary match against Donald Byrne and sacrifices his queen. I think at that moment, there were people in the Soviet Union, in the Moscow chess club, they looked at that game and thought, my God, <laughs> if anybody's going to be able to challenge our supremacy, and it wasn't it's Bobby about Fischer. wasn't it about that time that he got invited and he went over to the Soviet Union and he he famously behaved like a spoiled brat while he was over there, typical kind of ugly American, and didn't complain about everything. But but they brought him over kind of in a in a gesture of goodwill, and he of course acted like Bobby Fischer. He acted terribly. He'd sought an invite and he'd got an invite. And they wanted to show him the sights and show him the Kremlin. And he, being a monomaniac, was interested in only one thing, <laughs> playing chess. And he thought that he was snubbed by some of the best players. He wanted to play the top players and they weren't all available. Then he demanded money and they were outraged by that because uh, they were being hospitable and how dare he treats it as though, as though it was just a job. So the whole thing was a disaster. Um, I mean, he was, a, he was a disastrous poster boy for the American way of life. <laughs> uh, it, has to, it, it has to be said. Um, uh, he, he didn't reflect well on, on, on his home country. Um, and he offended everybody. And, uh, you know, I think that they are naturally 
it's naturally a hospitable culture in Russia. And I, of course, it was, it was very, very oppressive at the time, but I think they genuinely wanted to be hospitable towards him and found him impossible. And you had people like Van Cliburn, the famous pianist, go over there and they treated him like royalty and and other artists as well. The, the, the Soviet Union wanted Americans to come over there not only to celebrate their talent, which clearly they did on multiple occasions, but also, you know, show off their rich history, which they had a right, the communists didn't necessarily have a right to be proud of, but the Russian people had a right to be proud of. Centuries and centuries of, of phenomenal achievements in art and science and, and various other cultural items. Skipping forward to, let's get close to the match, Fisher thrown another hissy fit. He had disqualified himself from the round of uh, qualifying tournament, the qualifying tournament per se, for the 1972 World Championship. Through a little bit of trickery, the one of the members of the Americans who did qualify stepped aside, and Fisher was put back in his place. So Fisher thrown a fit. He had withdrawn, not participated. And you correct me if, if I'm wrong, please. But then he uh, had someone resign so that Fisher could be a part of the 1972 World Championship cycle. He plays in the inner zonal and famously wins the last, I believe, seven games in a row. And for those of you who are listening who aren't chess fans or chess historians, to win seven games in a row against like competition grandmasters at the top of the top of their game is a phenomenal achievement he then the next step in the candidates excuse me in the championship match is individual one-on-one matches he plays a russian grandmaster named mark timonoff he beats him six to zero he then plays the second best non-soviet player in the world fellow from Denmark named Bent Larson. They play in Denver. He beats Bent Larson 6-0. to zero. He's now won 19 straight Grandmaster games. In your book, Bobby Fischer Goes to War, you try to come up with an analogy to the non-chess interested person as to what a phenomenal achievement this is. Can you put into words for the Leaders and Legends podcast audience what it would mean or what it meant for someone to win 19, and he eventually won 20, and we'll get to that, 19 Grandmaster chess games in a row? I can't remember what we say in the book. It's, it's tennis. You, you do, you, do I, you, you uh, per, um, compare it to tennis. Like if, if you won Wimbledon without losing a single game, you won all your matches 6-0, 6-0. Right, 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 right. Well, it would be a bit like, bit like that. Or you imagine in golf, um, going round 18 holes, getting an eagle on, on every hole. Something like that. I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And it never happened uh, before. It did. It, it never had happened before, um, never will happen again. Uh, it's happened that one and only time. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. It's just imagine, uh, to use the professor's point, 
Freshman's point. Just imagine if Rafael Nadal won Wimbledon and he won all of his matches 6-0-6-0-6-0 against, and not against me, against Djokovic and Federer and Andy Murray. I mean, he's playing, Fisher is playing the best of the best and he's wiping these people out. So eventually he wins 20 Grandmaster games in a row when he plays uh, Tiger Petrosian, who's a former world champion. He wins that match, and now he has to face Boris Spassky. It's 1972 for the world championship in chess. And now Fisher Mania is absolutely exploding all over the world. Professor, talk to us a little bit about the preparations for that match, how the match almost didn't come off, and uh, who was the famous American government official who called Fisher and basically said, you've got to do this? Well, various cities bid for the match, and it ends up being a contest between Belgrade and Reykjavik. And Fisher is demanding more and more money, and Belgrade looks like they're going to get it, and then... Fisher's making more impossible demands and eventually Belgrade just withdraw because it's, it, it looks like Fisher is, is, isn't really serious or he's just making demands that can't be met. Uh, Reykjavik in Iceland, this island between these two superpowers, amazingly managed to get the money uh, uh, offer $125,000, um, which in those days is an awful lot of money for a game of chess. Unheard of amount of money um, for chess. Uh, they'd never had anything like that in the past. Uh, it looks like Fisher's going to agree, and then he again says that the money isn't good enough. Uh, a British businessman called Jim Slater, then steps in and doubles the prize money. And he basically says, come on, chicken, if it's all about money, <laughs> this should solve it. And he didn't even tell his wife. There's a, and we did an interview with him, and he, 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 he describes how he gets back home and he's on the front page of the London paper, The Evening Standard, and his wife said, what on earth have you done? He said, I had a interesting idea on the way to the office or something like that. Um, so he, he doubles the prize money and, 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 and Fisher sort of agrees to play, but uh, he's still, it's still not clear that he's going to turn up. And there's a call from a chap you may have heard of called Henry Kissinger, who rings up and says, this is, the worst chess player in the world calling the best chess player in the world. We had an interview with Kissinger and he talks about this famous phone call. He was actually to call him again during the match itself. Um, and basically he, 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 he tries to inspire Fisher with patriotism, which was actually a very clever tactic because Fisher had become convinced by this stage that the Soviets were conspiring to deny what was rightfully his, the world crown, right. that they were cheats, that they were com that the, the, the commies were, um, couldn't be trusted. And so, and uh, that they, and that they colluded, 
that they, they they threw and matches they could, and, and they and, agreed to easy draws so that they could con, conserve their own energy and then expend it while playing him. And there was a little bit of evidence that that was true. So the fact that Fisher was paranoid didn't actually mean they weren't out to get him. <laughs> uh, they may that they may well have colluded on occasion. Um, so, yeah, so the, uh, trying to rally Fisher by talk of this Cold War conflict was effective. And eventually, uh, after lots of shenanigans and with Fisher days late arriving in Reykjavik, he eventually turns up at the very, very last moment. He's been holed up in a hotel in the Catskills. He's persuaded a British international master to track down every single one of Spassky's games that he could. And it's, it's put in a red book. It's not like these days when all the games are available on computer. It was a big job to compile all these games. And he's been studying it. He's been sitting in his hotel, breakfast, lunch, and supper, pouring over this book. Um, trying to learn Spassky's style, trying to analyze what his weaknesses are. Um, But he's been doing it basically all on his own, whereas Spassky has this whole Soviet team behind him, people advising him on diet and physical exercise. Fisher's got none of that. Essentially, it is true that it is the lone American against the might of the Soviet chess machine. So it was a very asymmetrical battle. Uh, a battle that we didn't think was going to take place, but as I say, eventually he arrives on Icelandic soil, and at that stage, we think, oh, we can breathe a sigh of relief. The match <laughs> will, in fact, begin. And but you mentioned you mentioned a few. Was be- that was a, that was just the beginning of the drama. That's exactly right. You mentioned a few moments ago, and it seems so far away or non-existent far away for some of us and non-existent for many who came behind us. But you cannot, Professor, you and I are about the same age. I'll be 52 in December. You cannot understand the, the universal competition between the United States and the Soviet Union in the Cold War era. Olympics, the space race, chess, the list goes on and on. This was just another battlefield in a larger war. And it seemed one of the things that your book does so well is it brings that out. It's like, look, you have to understand the context of competition. The the Soviets can't possibly lose to the Americans in chess. That's the equivalent of the 72 Olympics when the United States lost to the Soviet Union for the basketball gold medal. I mean, this is our game. The Americans don't lose to the Russians. And the Russians are thinking, this is our game. We don't lose chess to anyone outside the Soviet Union, let alone this paranoid American kid, because he was still acting like a kid. And to your point about what happens when he gets to Iceland, go ahead. Well, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the two things to be said about the the, the Cold War. One is, you're absolutely right. So everything needs to be understood in one sense, in this Cold War context, this competition between the two sides, mutual hostility, mutual distrust and suspicion between them, 
wanting to outdo each other, need for propaganda victories, and chess was a very important propaganda uh, victory for the Soviets that they, that they dominated for so long. So it needs to be seen in that context. One thing we're also keen to point out in the book is that Fischer successfully presented this as a Cold War battle, which indeed it was. But 1972 was also not the height of the Cold War, as many people say when they're describing the chess game. They will say, at the height of the Cold War, Fischer played Spassky. No, that's just not right. The height of the Cold War was the Cuban Missile Crisis. The height of the Cold War was Reagan and... Uh, uh, Chimenko in in uh, an Andropov in the in the very early 1980s before before Gorbachev comes on the scene. These were very dangerous moments in the Cold War. 1972 was actually the peak of détente when relations were falling. Right. Uh, it, it was partly Fisher's success uh, and and one reason why it attracted so much attention that he was able to present it. I mean, he, he wasn't. It wasn't a kind of conscious kind of branding decision, but this is how he felt it. He felt it was a Cold War battle, and people bought into that. And that was one reason why it was on the front pages of all the the newspapers at the time. But we should remember that 1972, there was Ostpolitik, so West Germany and East Germany relations are, are better than they've been for, for many years since the Berlin Wall has gone up. And Kissinger is... Um, the world and there's there are meetings in, in in China and in in, in Moscow, so relations are, are not that terrible in 1972. But nonetheless, we have to understand the chess game as part of the competition that space was also part of, and and, and you mentioned basketball as well. Every other endeavor in which the two sides competed. Well, it's famous when, um, and I. I think the year it's the 50s i don't know if it's 54 55 when they the, the soviets inaugurated the tchaikovsky prize uh piano competition and a kid from texas named van Clyburn goes over there and he wins and the soviet officials who are running the competition go to Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and have to ask him permission to actually give this guy first prize because this American had won, you know, this piano competition named after the greatest uh, Russian composer. And this was in the 50s when the Cold War was really raging. And Khrushchev looked at the official and said, is he the best? And the official said, yes. And Khrushchev said, give him the prize. And that's what was going on. These, were, these things were happening, yeah. and, and they seem so far away now in, in, in 2019. One question I want to ask you, yeah. speaking of, of – sporting events, gaming events during the Cold War. Fisher beating Spassky, and when you were writing about it, and maybe this is an American thing and it wouldn't have entered your mind so much since you live in Great Britain, did you think any about the Americans beating the Russians in hockey at Lake Pla- in Lake Placid in February 22nd, 1980, which is considered the greatest sports upset of all time, at least from the American perspective. I mean, it was almost parallel. The Soviet hockey machine, the Soviet chess machine, the American team hockey team was a bunch of college kids, literally a bunch of college kids playing against the Red Army. 
And then you have Fisher with only one second, a guy named Larry Evans in Reykjavik going against Spassky and all these former world champions and grandmasters who are part of his team. Am I off track here, or am I just speaking too much like an American? No, 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 no. This is no, no. We did think about these these parallels as well. Um, uh, I mean, it was it was a tremendously important. I, mean, I think it was more important for for the Soviet sense of themselves than the American sense of themselves because it was part of a so chess was a part of a Soviet system, um, and. In America, it had been a slightly sort of eccentric hobby for mm-hmm. for you know, mainly males of a, of a certain sort of geeky males. That was its image. Um, so it wasn't at stake. Was more there was more at stake for the Soviets, I think, than there, than there was for the Americans. But nonetheless, to beat the Soviets at their own game was tremendously satisfying and i mean one of the things we we detail in the in 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 the book is just quite how much incredible coverage it got because there was a lot going on there there was events in in uganda with idi amin expelling the asians there were riots in northern ireland there was kissinger shuffling around the world trying to resolve the vietnam war and against all this background the chess still mm-hmm. makes it onto the front pages almost daily for the duration of the world championship. It was covered live by ABC here in the United States. Fisher made the cover of Time magazine. I mean, these things are absolutely, it, it's, there's no prior example of the game of chess receiving this sort of coverage throughout the world. And the person, I would argue, who made it happen is Bobby Fisher. Yes. Yes, without Bobby Fischer, um, it's impossible to imagine it having that effect. And certain kind of aspects we talked about his his bad behaviour, but uh, there was something very compelling about him. He, he'd got into sharp suits at this stage. He looked very elegant. He was tall. I don't know about classically handsome, but there was something quite alluring about his personality and just he was a very compelling man and uh, he was also unpredictable you never quite knew what was going to happen with Fisher so that made him box office that's a great point and he's also a a latter-day manifestation of that American icon and that's the cowboy the one person the one lone person uh, out in the frontier fighting the elements fighting the enemy it's a very American thing because of the expanse of our country and the history of the westward push, especially in the uh, 19th century. And here's Fisher standing alone against what is clearly the, the mightiest chess organization in the world. It's not even close. I mean, there, there's no way that Bobby Fisher by himself should have won that match. And I find it interesting that the subtitle of your book is how the Soviets lost the most extraordinary match of all time. Why did you choose to call it that as opposed to how Bobby Fischer won the most extraordinary chess match of all time? Well, until our book, there hadn't really been a detailed book about the match. After the match, there were 
many books published almost immediately, mm-hmm. but nobody had really looked at the match from all sides. Um, Bobby Fischer, insofar as there were books about it, he was always the main character. And nobody had asked about, well, what was going on in the Soviet side? So we wanted to tell the story from both sides. And to do that, we went to Moscow. We got into the archives. We got some papers that nobody had ever found. And we were able to describe what was going on in the Soviet camp. And that presents a very interesting picture. So Spassky was always presented at the time as this sort of faceless representation of the Soviet Union. That's a great point. There was... They were, they were never humanized, the Soviets. They, they were all seen as, as, as kind of robots in the system somehow. And, of course, they are all human beings, and they have their own individual characters. And Spassky's character emerges quite He's... deeply in the book, and we discover that just as Bobby Fischer is a sort of terrible representation of the American way of life and an embarrassment in many ways. He was an embarrassment. So Boris Baski was hardly the perfect embodiment as far as the authorities were concerned of Soviet communism. He didn't really approve of communism, although he had to keep it sort of quiet, Uh, um, but he was regarded as trouble. He regarded himself as a Russian nationalist, not a Soviet Mm-hmm. communist so he was proud of being russian he was actually i think he's still alive but but there's clear evidence that he of of, of anti-semitism in his makeup so he, there was there was a, there was kind of a little nastiness to his character but he was also very charming he was irreverent uh, he was a he was a, a bit of a class clown if that's the right term towards his yeah uh, his watchers and handlers in the chess in the chess world um and he was funny he was a funny guy he was he was he was uh the human being in this battle um, again we think of americans being uh, the country of individuals and, and the soviet union creating these kind of drones but actually <laughs> spassky was an individual uh, and an individual they found difficult to control. In fact, they found him deeply irritating because he was lazy, frankly. You have to work at chess just as you have to work at anything. You have to work at your opening preparation. You have to work at your technique. You have to constantly play. And they thought that he wasn't taking it as seriously as he should when they had their months of preparation before the game. So they found him very annoying and he would he would be slightly subversive when it came to the authority so he was difficult to control of course they had almost no choice but to work with him he was the world champion after all they wanted him to win but after the match was over and Spassky eventually is allowed to leave and go and settle in Paris because they regard him as being less trouble outside than inside uh, eventually, we're, we're jumping forward a bit now, but eventually they, they have another challenger to Fisher, a guy called Anatoly Karpov, who becomes the world champion. They're much, much happier with Karpov because Karpov is a loyal communist in the way that Spassky never was. And, and 
one other thing we should say, and then I want to talk for just a couple minutes about the match itself, and then I know our time is running short. The other thing you can say about Spassky, he was extraordinarily patient and gracious and classy. There was at least one, if not two occasions, he could have retained his world championship simply by saying, we're not going to give in to Fisher anymore. We don't care what he wants. He either plays under the conditions we've agreed to previously, or he forfeits, and I remain world champion. But Spassky wanted to play chess. He wanted to play Fisher, and there were multiple times where he could have just said, we're going to do it the way we've agreed to do it, and if Fisher doesn't want to do it, well then, I guess I'm world champion for another three years. But he never did that. That's absolutely right. And in fact, some of his colleagues were desperate that he hold the line and, and not concede points. And as you said, every stage, he made the concession. Part of the explanation is that eventually when they start, um, he wins the first game. And uh, Fisher makes an incredible blunder that even a beginner wouldn't make. He, he, he moves his bishop, takes... Uh, a, a pawn on H2 about his bishop to be tapped. Every club player would see that that was a disastrous move, and, and, and Fisher makes that move, loses the game, and then there's more trouble when Fisher complains about the cameras, and he forfeits the second game. He refuses to play the second game because he says it's too noise. This is part of his activity to, to noise. And then he makes more demands, and as, as you say, at that point, he could have said, no, um, we're not making any concessions. The rules are the rules, and if you don't want to play by them, then you, you forfeit the game, and I retain the world championship. But at that stage, Spassky was two points up, two nil, and it was the best of 24. It looked like it was very difficult for Fisher to find his way back into the game. So Spassky probably thought, well, things are going well for me. Uh, it looks like I am heading... For, to retain the world championship, I'd rather do it over the board than have Fisher storm out. It turned out to be, of course, a bad misjudgment, but you can see why he made that judgment. It was partly made because I think he calculated that he could win it, but he was genuinely a gentleman. And one of the many ironies of, 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 of this match is that although Fisher creates all sorts of problems about the board and the pieces and the noise and the audience. He respected Spassky. And That's actually, right. when the games began, there was no gamesmanship from Fisher. He played the game appropriately, and he respected Spassky as a great player, and Spassky always respected him. And they had a weird kind of marriage, a weird liking for each other, which... It's almost inexplicable, inexplicable given the political context and given the fact that they were rivals. But they respected each other and they retained that respect despite all the things that happened and all the shenanigans, uh, which was why many, many years later they were able to play a return match. They had, a, they had this grudging acknowledgement that they were two of the great players in the world and they were in this elite group. There weren't many people or they were the only two people at that stage who could compete to that level. And that brought them together, I think. Completely agree with that. And the leaders and legends podcast audience, I want to turn you 
to a wonderful show. I believe it was on HBO when it first came out, but you can find it on YouTube and Professor Edmonds is in it. It's called Bobby Fisher Against the World. And it's a terrific documentary, uh, a little bit about Bobby's life, but so much of it about that match. And it's in the context of Fisher's genius and what was happening around the world at the time, not only the Cold War, but the world of chess and the impact not only that Fisher had, but also the impact that this match had. Uh, I went to local public school here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, school 78. Yes. And we hit, I hit right at the tail end of the chess boom. I started playing in fifth grade. That was 77, 78. And it really, really was a big deal here in the United States. And you can attribute it directly, not only to Fisher, but also the world championship match and the hysteria around that match and the coverage of it. It is documented brilliantly in the book. Bobby Fisher goes to war, and Professor Edmonds, one of the authors, has been our guest on the podcast today. Thank you so very much for coming on. This is a gigantic treat for me personally. It's it's a huge honor, and I cannot thank you enough. Well, I've really enjoyed it, so um, thank you for having me on. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by... Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.